We've been in the book of, of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, for uh, several weeks, and uh, we're going to be in this, this uh, series for quite a while. I did a little math uh, this past week, and I was like, we're going to be in this thing for a bit, but uh, I think it's awesome. We're just walking through chapter by chapter and uh, just kind of doing an expository of, of this amazing book in the New Testament, it's how we kick off the New Testament, and uh, there's so much beauty to, uh, of course, the, the, the life of and ministry of Jesus, and, and so the community he forges around him. And so uh, we, are, we are actually in, in the, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount right now, and so if you guys want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 5 of the book of Matthew, and, and so uh, this is the most famous powerful, amazing sermon ever preached, obviously, and uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so many uh, incredible, important statements, um, but the whole, the whole heart of it is to bring us to the end of ourselves. This is where, um, where uh, something divine, something holy meets fractured, frailed humanity, and one of those two things is going to give and uh, God's heart and intention is to lovingly bring us to the end of our, ourselves to where we can begin a new life in him. And so um, here in this chapter, we started chapter 5 last week. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're concluding chapter 5 here. So the, the remainder of chapter 5, it, it has a central theme. He, he really goes after one theme, one topic. I'm just going to let these guys go. Jesus, be with them in whatever they're doing. Um, the, the remainder of chapter 5 has one theme, and it is righteousness. And uh, Jesus is hammering home this topic, this idea, righteousness. That is in, that's the entire rest of the chapter is about that. And now righteousness is a very Christian word. It's not something that necessarily comes up at work uh, or at school or, or around the house. We don't necessarily talk about righteousness as a theme very often, but believe it or not, it is sort of the central theme of our lives. And, uh, and, and I know righteousness is a kind of a Christian word. If you just put it this way, rightness, to be right, to be justified, to be, to be made right. We all crave it. We hunger and thirst for rightness, to, to be justified, to be, uh, to be approved of for our lives to count, to matter, and to reach a place where we feel like we, we, we are, uh, we're deserving. And so that is a central theme of our life, and, and we've all developed a, a, a strategy and, and, and a bit of a definition of what that looks like. Everyone has. Uh, inside the church, outside the church, uh, we've all kind of come up with an idea or uh, an image of what it means to be right. And, and we'll fight for rightness. We'll fight for our, uh, our image. We'll fight for our justification. We, we will often get defensive because someone's questioning our authenticity, someone's questioning our morality, someone's questioning our rightness, and we get defensive about it because it's, some, it's something very important to us. There's a term, right fighting. This, this culture is addicted to right fighting, and it's, that's, a, that's a fight because we're coming from a place of, I'm right, you're wrong. And, and we fight to establish that. And so um, Jesus is directly confronting our personal definitions of rightness. 
with these verses. He's picking a fight with our rightness. Our right fighting is being, is being uh, addressed, and he is picking a fight with that. And he is confronting whatever strategy, definition of rightness that we've developed over our lives. And so you'll notice throughout uh, these verses that Jesus contrasts these two statements. You'll hear it come up several times. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And so he'll contrast those statements throughout these verses. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And so what he's saying uh, with those statements is, you've heard it said, you've picked up on the theme, you've been taught, you've caught this, but I say, and this is the authoritative interpretation of what it means to be right coming from the source of rightness. So there's no, there's no way around being right uh, without Christ. One is good, one is right, one is holy, and, and the only gate to rightness is Him. The only one that can define what is right is Him. And so He is saying, uh, I say to you, I, I, I am the one that's meant to be defining rightness in your hearts and your lives. And so this is His authoritative interpretation of specifically the law of God, the perfect standard of a perfect God, and, and what that demands of us. And so uh, you'll find that he is, he is taking something that we've watered down and bringing it back to its purest form and its, its potency. And so let's start in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start with just verses 17 through 20. I have a lot of verses to read, and uh, we'll just kind of stop and talk about them, break it up a little bit. Uh, there's part of me that wants to apologize for reading so many verses to you in church uh, because just because it's a lot. But then the, there's another part of me that's probably right that says, what's wrong with reading the Bible in church? I mean, come on. Uh, so uh, let's, let's look at verses 17 through 20. And this is, this is what Jesus says. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or, uh, of the, or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In these three verses... Jesus speaks directly to the severity of God's demand for us to be holy and righteous. And uh, he, doesn't, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't mince words. He makes sure that we understand that uh, he says this, Do not think that I come to abolish the law uh, or the prophets. Don't think for a second that I've come to water this down. Don't think for a second that I've come to let you off the hook. Don't think for a second that there's a way to kind of move and position yourself around it. He goes on to say, until heaven and earth pass away, until the end of time, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. The, the, not one comma, no, no, not one uh, dash, not one, uh, one, not one letter of this thing is, going to, is, is, is not going to be fulfilled. It has to be fulfilled. Has to be. There's no such thing as close enough. 
I, was, uh, I went to Lowe's uh, a couple days ago because I had to get uh, WD-40, which is um, something that we all need sometime in our life. And, uh, and so I went to Lowe's, and uh, I went, my, this is the way my brain works. I'm thinking it's in a spray can. Uh, there's other spray cans over here. I'm going to go to the spray cans. And so where the paint, the, the spray paint, the Rust-Oleum, and I'm looking there uh, like a doofus. And, and so a, a gracious employee comes over and says, and, and can see it in my eyes and probably how I'm dressed. Uh, this guy doesn't know anything. And so, uh, do you need help? Chris, like she knows my name. Chris, I've heard about you. Uh, you need help. And she said, do you need any help? And I said, yes. Uh, if I'm looking for WD-40, am I hot or am I cold? She's like, you are very cold. I said, well, that's good to know. And I said, uh, could, could you tell me where it is? And she said, uh, aisle 49. And my first thought was, these no- that's, that's too high a number. These numbers are too high. I mean, this is lows, not highs. <laughs> I mean, come on. Um, so I was like, uh, 49, and I'm on like three right now. I was like, when's the shuttle bus? I don't know. Um, this is, uh, okay, so I go all the way to 49, and I walk this aisle a couple times, thinking I'm the problem. So I'm, I'm walking it looking, uh, no WD-40, nothing even resembling. And then I happen to glance up and look uh, in another aisle, uh, not 49, thank you very much, and there was a whole thing like... Uh, uh, they put a, a, a display in the middle of the floor, like it, it glows in the dark, shoots fireworks, and I can't miss it. And I'm like, there they are. And uh, so she was, I didn't want to go back and talk to her and say, hey, uh, 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 Bertha, I, I'm so sorry, uh, you, you, uh, you need to recalculate. But I'm, I mean, she threw it off the top of her head, so that's pretty impressive. And she was close. And being close worked out for me. Close enough was close enough. And so... Uh, that works in lows. That does not work with God. God's not grading on a curve. God is God. And to accept anything less than holy or righteous, any watered-down form of that would mean God is not God. He can't be holy and not demand holiness. He can't be righteous and not demand righteousness. It, it would be a contradiction. He would be a hypocrite. And he's not. And so the demand is holiness, is righteousness. And, uh, and Jesus says this, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is, we, we, we run right past these dramatic statements. You won't get in. You will not spend eternity with God unless your righteousness, and righteousness is your rightness, your, your holiness, your, your, uh, your right standing, unless that is better than the best people that you know. And you can imagine, this, this audience is a mixed bag of everything. So there are scribes and Pharisees there. And you can almost imagine... Then for a brief second, thinking this is a, an endorsement of how great they are. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees, as if they're the standard bearers. I'm like, oh, yeah. And then they sit there and think about it. Like, he said that your righteousness has to actually be surpass ours. That means we're not getting in. 
my righteousness doesn't surpass my righteousness. If, I'm the, if that has to surpass mine, then I'm not getting in either. So basically, he put everybody on, on notice. You're not getting in. They're, the best people you know, and if you think about them, the, the most right people that some of us uh, calibrate our rightness to, there's voices in this world, maybe someone you know or maybe someone out there who's a celebrity or, or, or someone that's uh, an in- intellectual, that we sort of calibrate our rightness to them. We start kind of adopting their opinion and perspective because we find it to be right. And then we sort of, the tractor beam pulls us into that. That person is way off. The best, the most successful, the, the people that we look at as the template and a, a, a in a, an example of success and happiness and fulfillment in this life, they are not right. Your righteousness has to surpass theirs. The best attempts that we have come up short. Jesus goes on to describe what it looks like for our righteousness to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He doesn't even leave it to interpretation. He says, if you wonder what that means, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Let me tell you what that looks like. This is verses 21 through 28. You've heard it said that the ancients, uh, or you heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable in court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, I I think Mr. T is being called out right here because he pities the fools, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar. Go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're you're with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last sin. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Steep. I think we tend to associate the law or rules in general, guidelines, with outward compliance, outward conduct. Just do the right thing. And I don't think that we ever, I don't think that we ever really consider the heart and motivation behind that. Um, growing up, I, I, as a kid, I would make a mess in my room, as every kid would, and I have a lot of toys everywhere. And if you if you were to come in, it'd be like a landmine situation. It's like walking hot coals to get in my room. You can step on Legos and GI Joes and all kinds of stuff. And so my mom would come up to my room and say, Chris, clean the room. Every once in a while, it's like once a week, clean the room. Uh, I don't think that my mom cared that my heart wasn't in it. Mom, 
I don't really feel like having a clean room. It's not really where I am. It's not my truth. <laughs> my, my truth is messy. And uh, I think my mom would, she would not even bat an eyelash at my personal feelings. Clean the room. And so uh, when we're speeding, uh, the officer pulls us over. Do you know how fast you're going? You're going uh, 98 in a 35. Uh, but officer, my heart is pure. And in my heart, I was going the speed limit. That's where I was on the inside. Uh, he doesn't care. He doesn't care if you say, I'm going to the hospital because I, I, this is an emergency. He doesn't care. You're going to get a ticket. The motivation doesn't matter. And then we, we, we translate that over to the law of God. And the law of God says, do not kill. I, I don't want to speak for everybody. I don't think any one of, of us have. I haven't. But Jesus says, you think you're off scot-free and that's enough. And, but he goes on to put the law back where it was meant to be, where we've watered it down and we just think outward compliance. He's saying, have you ever hated somebody? Have you ever been mad at someone? Well, now we're all guilty. Where we, none of us were guilty, now we're all guilty. He says, okay, uh, you, you shouldn't commit adultery. Okay, I won't. I'm not going to do that. But then he goes one step further and says, have you ever thought about it? Has your mind ever wandered? Have you ever lusted over anyone? Ever? Now, I wasn't guilty. Now I am. We're all innocent by the watered-down, lowered standard of the law that we've all kind of manufactured. But by, he says, but I say, you're all guilty. There's no watering it down. You don't have the power to water down something that God gave. Jesus is giving his authoritative interpretation. This is what it means. And what he's saying is the why behind the what is even more important than just the what. 1 Corinthians 13 addresses that directly. That's the chapter of love. And, and you have this beautiful state. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is all these beautiful things. And then it goes on to say, hey, listen, you can do great stuff. You can give your stuff away to the poor. You can, you can be martyred. You can, you can, you can prophesy. You can, you can have all the faith that you want to have. But if the motivation isn't love, if that isn't the why behind the what, then the what doesn't even count. So we're talking about the action-intention distinction, but Jesus is removing the distinction. Any, any person who's a, a good counselor could, will tell you, listen, just because you think that way, feel that way, doesn't mean you are that way. There's an action intention. Just because you thought about cussing out your boss, you didn't do it, so that shows your, your, your ability, to, your self-control. And we think that we're extra righteous because we don't do what we feel like doing sometimes, which you shouldn't always do what you feel like doing. But what we shouldn't do also is now count that as being extra righteous because we didn't do what we felt like doing. For some reason, seven, there's seven days a week. Sunday happens to be, I don't know if you've experienced this, the hardest day for people to move. 
We can get out of bed, leap, drink our coffee, go to work. But Sunday, for whatever reason, I've had people say, Chris, man, church is just too early. I'm like, it's 1030. I mean, the, the next step, I'm just going to put this at, at night. I mean, let's just, let's just go 630. There's still going to be people that I just couldn't get off the couch. Can't move. It's like paralysis sets in Sunday morning. Can't move. Um, there's people that would have told me over in the past, yeah, I did not feel like coming today, but I'm glad I did. And there's something in us that I didn't feel like coming to church, but I came. Is that extra credit in heaven? God's like, that's impressive. Like it exposes some, some deep righteousness that we have. I didn't do what I, I did what I didn't do, feel like doing. And we celebrate ourselves. Like, look at me. Say, like, well, that's good that you came, but it doesn't expose righteousness. It exposes deep unrighteousness. You didn't want to worship God with a community of believers? That's showing you what's wrong, not what's right. The fact that we don't want to shows us that we need Jesus more than we think we do. That's what he's getting at, is getting to the heart. Of course, we know 1 Samuel 16 says, God examines the heart. Man looks at the outside, judges the outside. God examines the heart, and so that's what he's getting at. Matthew 5, 29-37. These waters get deeper, trust me. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. <laughs> okay? Throw it from you. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you. It is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said that whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say that, uh, that to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you heard the ancients were, uh, were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all either by heaven, for it is, uh, it is the throne of God, or, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your statement be yes, uh, yes or no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. Pause. Let's just take a moment to consider the intensity of this conversation. I mean, he, lead, he opens it with, if your eye catches something it shouldn't catch, if it causes you to want to sin or think impure thoughts, cut it out of your head. If your hand does that, cut it off, throw it out. And what he's saying is, it is better for you to lose a part of your body and be dismembered than to be guilty of sin. Jesus is making sure that we cannot pass the buck here. What makes us stumble? Our flesh. Our flesh makes us stumble. We can blame every outside external excuse. We can make all these excuses. 
The reason is this. We can pass the buck. We can blame somebody else. He's saying it's your flesh that causes you to stumble. And because of that, it must be cut off. It must be burned. There is a a beautiful, powerful statement in Colossians 2 that deals with something that we don't talk about much in our modern culture. I don't know when the last time we talked about the significance of circumcision was at the water cooler, but uh, it was a big deal back then. In Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul says, you were actually circumcised in Christ. And then it goes on to say, the removal of the body of flesh by his circumcision, and then we are buried with him in baptism. So what this is talking about, cut out your eye, cut off your hand, the, 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 the removal of flesh, the cutting off of flesh, happens in Christ for us. So our flesh is cut off. It is burned in the person of Christ. It is buried in baptism. We are dead to sin, the Bible says. And we are alive to Christ. And so this is a bit of foreshadowing. And and the the power, the, the potency, the severity is on purpose because, but for Jesus, this is where we are. He's not, he's not, being dramatic for drama's sake, he's, he's being clear. He's saying, this is what the law says. This is, whether you interpret it that way or not, it doesn't matter. I'm going to tell you what it says. And so he's saying, this is the severity and the weight of it. Now, he, he gets into divorce, which some of us have experienced this. Some of us have walked through this. And so anytime it comes up in the, in the Bible, like here, it's like, oh, this is making me uncomfortable. This is actually, believe it or not, his description of divorce here is speaking to something far more supernatural and eternal than just personal experience, marital status. This is actually a, a diagram of why Jesus had to die in our place. I, I want to turn your attention to uh, Hebrews chapter 7. The author says this, the, the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living and that woman is joined to another man, she's an adulteress. She's committing adultery. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Jesus is saying the same thing. And he's, what he's saying is, legally, you are committed, married to, in a covenant with the law of God. We're born into that. There's no, I didn't choose it. I don't believe that. It's not my belief system. You cannot believe in gravity, but you're going you're to live by it. This is the law of the land. God made us, and we are born under this covenant of the law. The only way out 
isn't a legal separation. It isn't citing irreconcilable differences. We can't go to the court and say, the law and I don't get along. The only way out to where you are not guilty of being an adulterer, of stepping out on your covenant, someone's got to die. So we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection because he died for us, but something that we don't talk about nearly enough is that he also died as us. So as far as our relationship with the law, and this is what the New Testament talks about throughout, is our relationship with the law, according to that relationship, that dynamic, in Christ, we are legally dead. Because Jesus went to the cross and died as me. So my death certificate is what Jesus signed at Calvary. Chris Stapleton legally dead. So my connection to the Old Covenant is severed. And then I'm resurrected to new life in Christ, and so now this new creation that I am, I can be joined to another, and that is we are the bride of Christ. So when Jesus, he's not harping on divorce because he's frustrated with divorcees, He's talking about this as something that we, a legal system that we understood. Of course, we understood more then. It was, this is more severe then. That it's a diagram to why Jesus had to die in our place so that we could be released from the law, no longer under the law, no, matter, no longer uh, joined in covenant with the law, and we can be joined to another. This is really good news. Matthew 5, he goes on. I think we're wrapping up here. Yeah, this is it. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. I've heard, just take a break. I've heard people translate that because we're always trying to translate this in a doable way. And they say, when, when, they, when they, it says when you, they slap you on the cheek, turn the other cheek means walk away. Turn this cheek, right? Here's this one. It's um, not what he's saying. He's saying, give him the other one. Hit me again. I've been in, I've been in a couple fights in my life, believe it or not, uh, last week. In a, so I'm kidding. Um, one was in sixth grade, and uh, it was, I won't get into the whole thing, but um, it was over a toilet. So uh, sixth grade, I was standing in line for the toilet after lunch, and this kid who had the most majestic, amazing mullet I've ever seen in my entire life, he cut in front of me, whipped his hair back and forth, hit me in the face with his mullet. It's like a slap with the, the glove. And I was like, dude, and I was just a scrawny little guy. My mom still picked out my clothes. And, and he's like, what? 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 The, the tension was so palpable, it boiled over to the next day. This toilet fiasco, it, it went into the next manana. So during lunch, we're talking smack. So I, I go to the bathroom, and he comes in, like doing his thing, and he's ready to throw down. And I look up, and like the whole school is in the boys' room. There's teachers like placing bets. 
And so all I, knew, all I could think of, and I've watched a million movies, this was my first fight. I was in sixth grade. I was like, I can't throw the first punch. I'll get in trouble. So I looked at him. I said, hit me. And he, he popped me one. And it was this weird rush of adrenaline that didn't hurt. And it's probably adrenaline or whatever it was. But I was like, I was like I'm, in, I'm invincible. So I, hit, I said, hit me again. I turned the other cheek. I won that fight. But that has nothing to do with anything. Where was I? Um, whoever slept, I had no idea where that came from. Turn the other cheek. I hope that makes, the, uh, maybe I described the scripture more clearly. That's uh, Jesus ex- ex- exposing the heart of his scripture with that stupid story. Um, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you over your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Get this one. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Someone takes your shirt, give them your coat. Love your enemy. Pray for your persecutors. This is a lot. To No one wants to be a doormat. And, and you've got to take a step back and say, Jesus, are you asking me to take abuse from people? Jesus, are you asking me to, to roll over? If someone sues me, just give them everything. If someone's trying to take from me, just give it to them. If you're, you're, you're telling me I need to stop, shut down my life and inconvenience myself because someone wants me to go even further than I've already gone. I've done so much for somebody and they're asking me to do more. And then you take a step, a step back and, and you start reading the Bible through the lens it was intended to be readed, read, readed. <laughs> reading rainbow, read through. And that lens is not me. It's Jesus. This whole conversation, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is impossible. The Sermon on the Mount is the glorious impossibility. It is, if we're hung up on going the extra mile, maybe we forgot about plopping our eye out of our head, and maybe we, plop, we forgot about burning in hell because we got mad at someone. We need to read this through the right lens. And if you do, if you read it through the right lens, suddenly you start to see who turned the other cheek when they were being beaten. Jesus did. He didn't, he didn't walk away. He didn't throw in the towel. He didn't give in. He, he turned the other cheek. Who went the extra mile with splinters from the cross digging into his back? His back. 
Who had his garments gambled over and taken from him? Who could possibly love their enemies and pray for their persecutors? This is not describing you or me. This is describing Jesus. In fact, this is describing Jesus on one specific day. This is describing Jesus walking to Calvary, walking to the cross, carrying the cross. And then he goes on to say, he, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Some people have just, they, they try to kind of draw a line and say, sun good, rain bad. That's not true. Sun good, rain good. So what he's saying is he causes what you need in that moment to happen because of his goodness, not because of yours. He, he does that for the, the just and the unjust, the righteous, the unrighteous, the good and the bad. So what he's doing, he's lifting our eyes, he's turning our eyes to him off of ourselves in our own personal deservedness because according to this, do we deserve anything but hell? No. But yet he is unfairly good because that's who he is. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? His love is unconditional. Our love is from him. We love because he first loved us. That is the love that we love with. So as he loves us, we begin to remove conditionality to love other people. All that was a preface. All that was just a... a it was foreshadowing. It was, uh, it was just to bring us to this one sentence. The last sentence in chapter 5. And this is the crescendo. This is, this is the reveal. This is the big dramatic ending. Matthew 5.48 Therefore, because all this I just said, considering everything I just talked about, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, whatever personal definition of righteousness we've had, if you consider that, what, what, what personal definition of righteousness or rightness or image, or, or strategy of being right, being justified in this world, whatever that is, put it up against Jesus' statement here. Be perfect before God. Be perfect like God. He doesn't even allow us to translate this wrongly. It's not be perfect, meaning do your best and God will do the rest. Give your old college try. You know, just try your best. No, be perfect like God. If, if I take my definition of rightness in this world, living a life that's worthy of praise and admiration and defined as being successful, and I put it up against that standard, I, I, don't, I miss the mark by a country mile. So many try to make the Bible um, 
fuel for the fire for their own personal religious advancement. And in fact, Jesus says in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in the scriptures you have eternal life, but it's these that testify about me. We, we try to take this and work it. Work, 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 work. We try to take the, the rules and like this is just really good advice. The Bible is just really good life hacks for living your best life now. Nope. This, this is all pointing to a person. And that one person is the only person who is perfect as his father is perfect. Christ alone. With this sermon, Jesus is showing us how great that distance is between our version of rightness and God. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? You have to have perfectly clean hands, perfectly clean hearts. So who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Not a dang one of us. Nobody. On my best day, my righteousness is filthy rags. So he's showing us He's showing us the conclusion. He, he, he flipped to the end of the book and, and, and showed us. He, spoiler alert, he went to the end of the movie and said, this is how it ends. You miss it by a mile. And what this is meant to do is kill, destroy our pride. It's meant to kill our self-righteousness. The number one quality of a believer should be that's, that, that's perceivable should be humility. Love and humility should be the, the name tag, the calling card, the identifying traits of a believer. But you get around Christians in the modern era, and there is a lot of pride a lot of the times. Because they forgot how far off they were. This is supposed to destroy, decimate our pride our self-righteousness. If I can read this and think, I'm, at least I'm better than, then I need to read it again. It's supposed to destroy our pride and it's supposed to bring us to a place of despair. I can't do this. And then, as he always does, Jesus meets us right there. He meets our despair with his deliverance and then suddenly... Through the despair, the curtains open, and we are free. We are unshackled from the impossible burden of self-justification and making ourselves right. Here's the truth. You're not as right as you think you are. How much more do we enjoy life when we are released from the burden of trying to always prove ourselves, establish ourselves, make sure that people see us in a certain light? Who cares? He has made me right. I'm free. I'm free from the impossible burden of this self-righteous existence. He's delivering verse after verse after verse of really bad news. But if you turn your attention to who's delivering this news, you'll find the good news, the too good to be true news of the gospel. Because I'll take you back to the first sentence we read. 
the first thing he says, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So everything that he mentions, he talks about that is absolutely impossible, the good news is he will do that for you. He has done that for you. When he said it is finished from the cross, this is what he's talking about. Close the book, put it on the shelf. I just did, is a mic drop. It is finished is the mic drop. I just did for you what you could never do in a million years. Now, we can live life righteous. He fulfilled it perfectly just for you. As much as as this is Jesus' authoritative interpretation of the law, this is also an unbelievable description of the life-altering significance of His amazing grace. Yes, He is putting his, His authoritative interpretation of the law out there so that none of us can water it down, none of us can work around it, none of us can lower the bar. He's putting it out there so that it is crushing, it is, it is impossible, it is overwhelming. He's doing that for a reason. But in doing that, he also displays how amazing this grace is because look at the impossible weight and burden that he took upon him, his own shoulders in order to make us righteous. Something we forget about the cross is how much that cost how brutal it was. We we have been convinced I'm a pretty good guy and I'm probably just, I just need a little assistance. I'm I'm, I'm a strong B plus and Jesus' life can take me over the top. That That is not at all accurate. We're not even in the conversation. We're nowhere near where we need to be. Jesus is everything for us. He is our righteousness. He is our right standing. Without Him, we're out in the cold. But we're not without Him. He has captured us. He has brought us in. And He has removed the shackles from our, from, from our lives. He's removed the burden of the law from our our shoulders, and he has made us once and for all righteous before God. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is his amazing grace towards you.